Uh, well, let, let's take a moment just to pray again, just for the, the hearing and the teaching of God's word. And so let's, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word that shines a light into the darkness of our lives and into the darkness of our hearts and minds. And so, Lord, what, what I ask in this time is that through your spirit, that you would teach us and shape us and form us through your word so that we might be more and more like Jesus, our King and Messiah, who is fully God and fully man, who has come to do something about the brokenness in us and around us. And so, Lord, as we hear these words, maybe familiar to some, new to others, would we hear them as your words to us, so that we might know how to live in this broken world as broken people, seeking your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So bless this time. May you use it for our good, our growth, our strength, and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Lent. And uh, so I want to see if, if my kids here in the room here, does anybody know what Lent is? I'm asking my kids here. Does anybody know what Lent is? And no, it's not the stuff you pull out of your dryer. That's, that's Lent. That, that's what I always thought when I was a kid. I always thought the season of Lent was like, it's like 40 days of cleaning your dryer. That's what you do? Okay, that's, that's interesting. But does anybody know what Lent is? Does anybody know what Lent is? Okay, well, then I get to educate you. That's so fun. Okay, so the season of Lent, the word Lent is really weird. We don't really use it all that often in our common language in conversation. But the word Lent, it actually comes from an old English word that means to lengthen. And, and, and the idea is that during this season of Lent, it's about during the time of spring when the days are getting longer. It's also about the sign of kind of, of renewal. And that word has been used, Lent, to describe this season of the church, which is meant to be kind of a time of renewal. It's a season of giving particular attention to imitating Jesus. That's really what this season is about, which some people would say, like, well, should we imitate Jesus all the time? Of course, but there are times in our life, and I think we all can identify with this, where there is a need to give particular attention to things that have been neglected. And so during the season of Lent, it is a time for the church to lean in and to intentionally, collectively practice these disciplines that sometimes get forgotten in following after Jesus. But, but Lent can often get a bad rap. I, I think people kind of look down on Lent, and, and for good reason, I think, because of ways in which the church has maybe misused this season. So I want to just say two very quick things. One, to those who look down on Lent. Okay, and that, that might be some of you, but like, I just want to say this. We need seasons of reorientation and recalibration. We, we all need that. Like, there's a reason why like, we go on diets or we exercise or we train for certain things. We give particular attention to things that have been neglected. Or, or if you're a student, just think about like, you don't study constantly, but there are times in your uh, academic career where you will give more attention to studying uh, than other times, especially preparing for a test. In the same way, when we think about the season of Lent, it's really about giving particular attention to imitating Jesus. It's not about a religious competition, but it's about trying to give particular attention to Jesus. Because some of us might say, like, well, I don't, I don't need a season of Lent to, to follow Jesus, you know? Like, but by that same logic, 
you might say, like, I don't need Mother's Day to let my mother know that I appreciate her. It's like, first of all, yes, you do. Uh, but, but second of all, like, have you ever met a mother? Like, like you would, that would never fly. Like, Mother's Day is meant to be a special day to celebrate mothers. In the same way, the season of Lent, it's not about religious performance. It's rather this collective time where the church is saying, hey, let us give particular careful attention to following Jesus. Now I want to give a word to those who Lent has looked down on. Because there are some of us who have been beat up by this season. It may be because of our church tradition growing up or the way in which other Christians have used this season to kind of be the litmus test or the proving grounds of how faithful and how much you love Jesus. And some of us feel and associate this season with shame and guilt of never being good enough. And what I want to say to you is I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that this beautiful, rich season of imitating Jesus has been hijacked and sabotaged to make you feel as though you can never match up and that God is always disappointed in you. That is not what this season is about. The season of Lent is meant to be this reminder that, yes, we are great sinners, but the secondary truth to that is that Christ is a great Savior. And Lent is about leaning into this time more faithfully reminding ourselves that Jesus has come to make a way for us to be known by the Father and for us to know him. And so I wanted to take a little uh, break from our our, um, series in the book of Acts and just today look at a passage of scripture that's often taught during the season of Lent, which is on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, but the text will also be on the screen. But, but if there's one idea, you probably know me enough to know that I like to do this, is that one idea from our time together, it's this, that Lent prepares us for battle. And, and I know that the metaphor of battle may be kind of negative for some people, but I think it's appropriate when we understand what sin is and what Jesus has come to redeem us from. Lent prepares us for battle. Lent is not about religious activity or legalistic obligation. It is about concentrated time and attention on being more like Jesus. Lent is somewhat like boot camp, if you will, of training and preparation for the battle of working against and pushing back darkness in us and darkness around us. And and some of us need this metaphor of battle because we have grown rather apathetic to sin. We have kind of allowed sin to kind of be um, an annoying roommate that we just tolerate. And that what sin is, though, is something that we must be putting to death. As as the, the old Puritan theologian John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That to be following after Jesus is to take seriously the fact that there is an enemy that desires to destroy us, deceive us, and divide us. And if we are naive to his schemes and tactics... And if we are naive to the sin that is within us, we are susceptible to all kinds of ruin in our life. Lent prepares us for battle. And so I want to give, so this is, I I don't always do kind of three-point sermons, but this one just kind of felt like it naturally came together. So here's my, my first point is this, is that we need to, you need to know your enemy and know yourself. This is the first thing that I want us to see in the temptation story of Jesus. The first step in any battle is to know your weaknesses because your enemy will learn to exploit them and use them to your advantage. 
I remember uh, the first fight I ever got in, like the first fight, so that implies there were others. Yes, I've got many stories. But the first fight I got in, I was in fourth grade against this kid named Curtis Hughes. And in my mind, I've probably told you before that I was convinced I was going to be a ninja when I was a kid. And so I got, I was ready. I watched so many episodes of Ninja Turtles, like I was ready for this fight. And the way I envisioned the fight going is that Curtis was going to charge at me, and I would wait patiently, and then do a roundhouse kick to his face, and then the fight would be over. What happened is that as, at this moment, is when Curtis just tackled me and began to punch me in the face for about nine weeks straight. That's what it felt like. Like, I had an expectation of how the fight was going to go, and Curtis exploited my stupidity. Uh, I was not aware of the fact that I couldn't fight. I was deluded and think I was stronger than what I was, and because of that, I fell prey to the attacks of my opponents. I say that, it's obviously a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I say that to illustrate if we are deluded about ourselves and about our enemy, we will fall prey to all forms of temptation and ruin. So look with me again at Matthew 4, the opening verses of chapter 4, we read these words, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus, so the first thing to point out, Jesus knowingly enters the wilderness. The wilderness, biblically speaking, I mean, it's literal, but it's also a, a figure, a metaphor of temptation, of darkness, of danger. And Jesus knowingly enters the wilderness. He is expecting temptation and battle. He's preparing for what is to come. And so the same thing for us to kind of take a cue from Jesus here, knowing our enemy, knowing and preparing for battle, knowing that there is temptations of all kinds around us is a key to fighting against sin. And one thing about our enemy is that he is well aware of our weaknesses and he will exploit them. Because I don't know if you noticed this, when did the temptation start? When did the battle between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness begin? It began on day 40. After Jesus had been in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, that is when the temptation begins. Did you notice that? When Jesus is at his, humanly speaking, he's at his physically most weak moment. And that is when the temptation begins. The reason I bring this up is because we must be aware that it is when we are our weakest that our enemy tends to tempt us. And so the question for us is, are we aware of our weaknesses? And are we aware of when we are weak? This is how our enemy works, and this is how we fall into sin. We must be aware and attentive to our triggers, to our weaknesses, to our vices, to our temptations. If we are not, if we turn a blind eye to the things that ruin us, we will find ruin coming upon us. John Owen, I mentioned him earlier in his great book, The Mortification of Sin, which is like, that's a great title of a book. Sounds like a heavy metal album. Uh, but he says this, one of the choicest and most important parts of spiritual wisdom is to find out the subtleties of any indwelling sin, knowing what are the subtleties of the sins within us. To consider where its greatest strength lies, how it uses occasions and opportunities and temptations to gain an advantage. And then he says this, we must learn to say, ah, this is your usual method. I know what you were up to. And so to be always ready is the beginning of our warfare. 
And so the question still remains for us, are we aware of when we are our weakest? Are we aware of when we are most susceptible to to temptation? And I want you to honestly give reflection to that during this season of Lent. Again, not to feel shame and guilt, but so that we might imitate Jesus in battling our enemy who seeks to destroy us. When are you most likely to give in to temptation? Pay attention to all of the factors that lead to temptation. There may be emotional factors that you're more likely to fall into sin when you are anxious, perhaps. There may be physiological elements that you're more likely to fall into sin when you're tired. There may be relational elements that lead to our temptation. You're more likely to give in when you're alone or circumstantial elements that when maybe you're using alcohol, you're more likely to fall into sin. Remember, we are embodied souls. We are not just souls that have bodies. We are an embodied soul and the physical and the spiritual impact one another. I mentioned last week the work of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a book about one demon writing to another demon about how to tempt human patience. And listen to what Screwtape says to Wormwood the demon. Whatever their bodies do affects their souls, referring to humans. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. What this means is that when we are ignorant to our temptations and weaknesses, that is precisely when our enemy has the upper hand in our life. If we remain naive to this, we are either foolishly arrogant, we are either dangerously indifferent, or we are either wickedly acceptant. We are either foolishly arrogant, like, ah, it's like, it's not going to happen to me. There's no way that I could fall prey to this. Or we are dangerously indifferent, like, it's not that big of a deal. Who cares if I fall into this temptation? Or we're wickedly acceptant, which is basically saying, I have no problem with the fact that I have problems. We have to be aware of how our enemy works in us and to know the experiences and environments that bring about our temptation. So we have to know ourselves and to know our enemies. Secondly, we need to look beyond the first attack. And let me explain what I mean by this. Just like in in battle, or if you were to uh, imagine a a boxing match, um, if you are only preparing for the first punch from your opponent, like you may block that first one, you may block the jab, but you will miss the uppercut. If you are only focusing on the first attack, you will actually lose the battle. You will avoid that first punch, but you will fall prey to the uppercut that follows. Just like in any battle, we must be prepared for the attack behind the attack. And listen, listen to what uh, is recorded for us in, in Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus answered, this is his response to the first temptation. Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the reason why Jesus responds here is because he sees through the first attack. The the first attack of the enemy is to bait him with bread. It's like, it's not that big of a deal. Like some of you who are gluten-free, like bread is a big deal to be very clear. But like, but like the, the whole temptation is not about bread. Satan is trying to get Jesus to break his fast so that he can get Jesus to treat God in a different way that he should be treated. He's trying to get Jesus to treat God like some kind of Santa Claus in the sky. Give me what I need and want. And that is not the way we relate to God. 
Satan's first temptation is to bait Jesus with bread, but what he's really getting at is trying to get Jesus to fully rely on something other than God. That's the, that's the uppercut. The jab is just saying, hey, just turn these stones into bread. The uppercut is to rely on something other than God. Thomas Brooks, uh, who wrote an old, old book many years ago, and this is, prob- this is probably my favorite title of any book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. That actually sounds like a heavy metal album, actually. So, but th- this is what, this is what uh, Thomas Brooks says in describing how our enemy baits us and tempts us. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin. And to hide from the soul the misery that will certainly follow. Now, this may feel like, gosh, it, it feels like we can never win in some kind of battle against our enemy, against sin, against temptation. But it's important to know these tactics of our enemy so that we can be ready for battle. And what what Brooks is really referring to here, there's kind of two meanings here. The first is that we don't always see the consequences of sin when we give into it. And it's really important for us to learn that that sin always has a consequence. And it always has some kind of effect on us in the here and now as well as later. But the second meaning of what Thomas Brooks is talking about here is that the bait can often be a good thing that is used to distract us. It's not just that we are tempted by things that are bad, but good things like bread that are used to hide the hook that tempt us to other things. So, so let me give it like a very practical example. If, if your pitfall sin, let's say, is greed, that, that if you feel that greed is something that kind of captures your heart, the battle against greed is not fought at the moment of deciding, should I spend my money on this thing that is just for my own personal benefit and to make myself look better in the eyes of those around me? Like, the battle is not fought at that decision. The battle to fight against greed starts several decisions before that. The battle takes place well beyond the moment of deciding, should I buy this thing for myself from a motive that is really about making myself look good in the eyes of other people? So how do we prevent greed from taking root in our hearts? The one thing I would say is stop mindlessly scrolling on social media, which you may not see that as a connection to greed, but like as you're scrolling, you come across somebody who bought this new thing or went on this new whatever, and now all of a sudden you're envious and jealous, and now you want this thing, and then you're angry and bitter because you don't have it, and then your greed takes over and you make a decision that really probably isn't wise, and it all came because you were bored in line at Chipotle. Are we aware of the little things that take place in our life that lead to making bigger decisions that ruin us? It is the seemingly small and insignificant things that end up leading us down the path of sin if we aren't aware of it. C.S. Lewis, again, in the Screwtape Letters, says this. It does not matter, again, remember, this is a demon talking to a demon, okay? It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. 
This is why we have to be aware of the work of our enemy. So often our enemy is not trying to get us to do the worst thing we could ever possibly do. But these subtle sins that creep in, that we grow apathetic to, that we grow tolerant of, and that we become acceptant of in these seasons of life. Are we aware of the triggers in our life? So, we need to know our enemy and know ourselves. We have to look beyond the first attack, but lastly, we have to make a counter-strike. We have to make a counter-strike. The devil tempted Jesus in three ways. And while they were each different, they all had the same goal. The goal was to draw Jesus away from the Father. The first temptation was the temptation of satisfaction. Turn these stones into bread. Again, not a bad thing, but what that does, what the enemy is trying to do, is to get Jesus to find his satisfaction in something other than God. The second temptation is safety. Throw yourself down, the angels will secure you. So Satan is using a very good desire. The desire for satisfaction, the desire for safety, these are good things, but he's subtly using them as the bait to hide the hook, which is to draw Jesus away from the Father. And then the last temptation is the temptation of significance. That he wants Jesus to see, look, look, I can give you all these kingdoms of the world if you will just bow down and worship me. That is not necessarily a bad thing to desire significance. It just depends on what that desire is for. But at each point in the attack, Jesus did not simply say no. He did not simply say, I'm not going to do that. He offered a counterattack to what the enemy was offering him. And each time, Jesus quotes scripture. In fact, he just quotes from one book of the Bible, from the book of Deuteronomy. And he's using the word of God back at Satan to kind of push him back. He's not just saying no. He does not battle sin with willpower. I'm like, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. He battles it by countering against what he's being tempted by. Let let me illustrate it this way. uh, We have this rug in our bedroom. And, and I, like, several months ago, I, like, I tripped on it on the way, like, coming out of the bathroom towards our bedroom, I tripped on the corner of this rug. The next day, I tripped on it again, and I was super annoyed by it, because it, like, it just kept, kind of kept catching my foot. After the third, fourth, or fifth time, like, it's no longer the rug's fault, okay? This is now user error on me. But what I started to notice is that every time I tripped on that rug, it became easier and easier to trip on it. Why? Because as I tripped on the rug one time, I'm folding up the corner. And the next trip folds it up a little bit more. And so now this corner of the rug that was just like maybe a a half inch off the ground is now curled up about six inches off the ground because I keep tripping on it and I do nothing to correct it. This is our relationship often to sin. That we trip on it. It's like, oh, that was annoying. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It won't happen again. And then it happens again. You're like, well, it's not, I mean, yes, that was a big deal, but it won't happen again. And then now all of a sudden you're tripping on this thing every single day because you never took the time to counter strike it when it reared its ugly head the first time. Are you trekking with me? Does that metaphor make sense? Some of you are like, I've never owned a rug before. I don't know what we're talking about. But, but the whole idea is that if we are tolerant of sin at the early stages, it will continue to grow and tempt us and lead us down paths that we don't want to go. So here's my question. What sin in your life do you treat like the corner of a rug? 
that you trip on it, you fall on it, and you're just like, I, I know that's a, it's not that big of a deal, and you're doing nothing to correct it. The final counterstrike that Jesus gives the devil was the one that bid him cease. And we see it in verse 10. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him. Notice that at every counterstrike, Jesus not just quotes scripture, but he quotes scripture for the purpose of worshiping God. It is the worship of God that replaces our worship for anything else that tempts us and leads us to our destruction. The counterstrike to temptation is worship. It is not just about avoiding sin. This is where sometimes Lent is abused. That Lent is just all about willpower and just giving up something uh, by your own strength. But Lent is about taking hold of Jesus. Lent is about saying, I know my proclivities to sin. I know that I am tempted in these ways, and I want to turn away from them. Why? So that I may hold fast to Jesus. The way in which we get out of sin is through worship, not through willpower. The counterstrike to temptation is worship. Repentance is not just turning away from sin, but turning towards Jesus. It is the act of giving attention to what you give your attention to and then declaring that you will now give more attention to Jesus. Again, the season of Lent, the reason I'm spending so much time on this story is because I wanted to prepare us for the season of Lent. And Lent is about the imitation of Jesus in order to grow in intimacy with Jesus. So I'll close with this. There, there, historically in the church, there have been these kind of four practices that Christians and followers of Jesus have leaned into during the season of Lent. These are not rules. These are not regulations. I'm not going to check in on you. Like, how often have you done this thing? But, but the, the four practices are introspection, repentance, fasting, and service. Introspection is really just the practice of paying attention to what we pay attention to. Like, it's, it's, it's looking for the little curves of the rug that we keep tripping on and paying attention to those things and figuring out, why do I keep tripping on it? What keeps drawing me to this thing? The second practice of repentance is turning from sin, not just recognizing it, but having the ability to say, I don't want this to be a part of my life anymore. And so, so what I would say during the season of Lent, you know, we practice the prayer of confession every Sunday, not because uh, it's about kind of contriving guilt, but so that we might understand that we are freed in Jesus when we confess. And so one thing we're going to do is we're going to post our prayers of confession every week. So if you want to, you can have access to them. Pray them during the week if you'd like. Engage in that way. The third practice is fasting. And the idea here, and this is where maybe some people have uh, an, an unhealthy relationship to fasting because it feels like a religious duty and obligation. But what I would say is identify something in your life that has mastery over you. What is something that has mastery over you? It, it could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be entertainment or media or whatever. What is the thing that draws you away or creates an environment where you're more likely to fall into temptation? Fasting is not just about a spiritual willpower exercise, but it's a way of saying, I don't want anything other than Jesus to have mastery over me. And then lastly, service. Service is this way of kind of saying, I don't want to just simply turn from sin and turn towards Jesus. I want my life to reflect his care and compassion for those around me. 
And so, so one thing we're going to do uh, as a church, and again, please hear me, this is not a legalistic like ritual, but we want to try to practice acts of kindness during the season of Lent, which may sound rather simplistic or elementary, but, but the idea is that we are not just simply turning from something, but turning towards something. And so what we're going to do is just encourage people in Trinity to say, hey, sometime during Lent, you can decide if it's a daily thing, a weekly thing, whatever it is, but find some kind of frequency of practicing acts of kindness, not out of obligation, but out of a desire to imitate Jesus and be closer to him. And so you may, you, you may practice the, art, uh, the act of sending an encouraging message or card to someone. You may do some kind of street cleanup, or you may pay for someone's coffee. or what, like there, There's an endless list of things you could do. But one of the things we want to do to encourage uh, accountability with this is we're going to have a little form, an acts of kindness form, that you can fill out anonymously just to say, hey, here is what my act of kindness was or what my act of kindness will be. And, and it's not about policing it, but it's actually about a way of, of sharing that with others. And so we may periodically share what others are doing. We won't have names attached to it, but just to encourage others to engage in this act of positively being a presence of love and kindness towards those around us. And so that's something we're going to try again. Please don't hear that as any kind of obligation, but rather as a way to take hold of Jesus and imitating him in thought, word, and deed. So with that, as I mentioned earlier, it is not difficult to view this season of Lent as nothing more than a time to engage in religious competition. And that is not what the season is. Rather, it is about giving particular attention to imitating Jesus by turning from sin, focusing on the things that he loves, and reminding ourselves that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And that leads us to the beautiful celebration of Holy Week culminating in Easter. And so my hope and prayer for us during this Lent is at the end of the day, the goal would be to draw closer to Jesus in all of life. May that be the desire of our hearts, the purpose of our deeds, and the goal of our lives. Because the goal is to not simply will ourselves to be like Jesus, but to desire to be with him and near him, to reflect him in thought, word, and deed. May it be so of us. Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this season that allows us the chance to reflect on where we are susceptible to brokenness, to temptation, and sin. Would you, Lord, do the good work of helping us see where we stray from you so that we might draw nearer to you? Lord, help us to know your heart, your tender heart as a father, which is to guard us and protect us from destruction from those around us and from our own actions. And so, Lord, may we turn away from that which destroys us and turn towards you so that we might take hold of you and delight in the goodness of your love towards us in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.